Well, do you care what other people think of you? Are you concerned with how others view you? Do you want to be liked and accepted? Of course you do. All people do. In fact, this this fact drives perhaps most of our consumer spending. Let me just think. Makeup, clothes, haircuts, shoes, purses, rings, watches, phones, iPhones, cars. For some people, if they were honest with themselves, they'd have to admit that the vast majority of the things they do and the things they buy are, are motivated by what others will think of them. Now, in a sense, this desire for approval is built into our natures. No one outright wants to be rejected and despised by the world who doesn't want to be favored among others. And it's not inherently evil to desire acceptance, but the problem is that after the fall, these desires for acceptance have become warped. And now we care far more what the world thinks of us than what God thinks of us. We greatly desire the world's approval as opposed to God's approval. Being accepted by God, that's of little concern. Being accepted by the world, that's everything. And this is a problem. We've gotten our desires backwards. And so why then? Why do you care so much? It ultimately comes back to self, a concern for self. And for one, we desire to be approved by others because it leads to a little sense of maybe peace and security and comfort in life. No one wants to be in conflict. No one wants to be in an oppressed minority. And so you will naturally gravitate toward the majority, i.e. the world, because it, it seems safer. When you're accepted by the world, you can rest easy. And further, we desire to be approved by others because it gives us a certain sense of fulfillment or satisfaction makes us feel good about ourselves. We derive a sense of worth from the valuation of others. This is a big one today with social media, for example, where there are a great number of people who just thrive off of social media attention and they can't feel happy about themselves unless the world is liking them and and showering them with praise. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, it's not wrong to desire peace and acceptance, right? Well, yeah, that's right. Those desires aren't wrong in themselves. But again, the problem is that in our sinful condition, these desires get blown way out of proportion and distorted. They become the driving forces in our lives, all to the neglect of God. It's natural to desire peace, safety, and security. But those desires are meant to be fulfilled by God, not the world. He is our peace, our comfort, and our help. And we should look to him, not the world, for security. And also, it's natural to want to be accepted. But the only acceptance that should really matter to us is that from God. Our real worth is derived from our right relationship to him and not the world. You see, God is meant to fill up all these tanks that he created us with. The peace tank, the comfort tank, the security tank tank, the satisfaction tank. He created us with these desires and he intended to be the one to meet our needs, to fill us up. And like Niagara Falls, he can do so easily, fill up all that he created us for. But the trouble is that in our sinful condition, we we turn away from God and we turn toward the world and the things of the world to fill us up, so to speak. But that's a bad trade. That's like trading Niagara Falls for a leaky faucet. It's not going to fill you up. 
And God himself said this in the Old Testament to Israel, convicting them of the same bad trade. In Jeremiah 2.13, he said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a bad trade. And it gets worse because when people come to live for the world, it leads them to follow the world. When you're after the world's acceptance, the world's approval, when you're just, you're driven by the world's peace, well, you're going to be conformed to the world, right? Naturally, if you want to be accepted by the world, well, you need to be like the world. You're going to have to talk like them and act like them and think like them and believe like them. You're going to have to love what they love and hate what they hate. You have to be them and then they'll accept you. You'll get that acceptance that you're after. They will, they'll take you in. But I trust you can see the further problem with this because not only is the world not meant to fulfill us or drive our desires, it's also not meant to guide us. For the ways of the world are are just completely opposite to the ways of God. The way of the world is just sin and, and self. And if you go down that road, you get allured by the world. Maybe it's out of a fear of rejection. Or maybe it's just a love of pleasure. But if if you go that way, you're only going to find the hostility of God. Because this world exists in in rebellion and enmity with God. And so if you're siding with them, what do you think that makes you? And don't act like you don't have a problem with this. You may be, maybe you're strong in the Lord now. But look, we all live in the world. And it's exerting its pressure on us 24-7, just wanting us to break, wanting us to become like them, to act like them, to join them in their rebellion against God, to prove that, you know, we Christians are no different. And so if you ease up in your pursuit of the Lord and finding your peace and your joy and your fulfillment in him, well, it won't take long for you to be conformed to the world. It's kind of like driving a car uphill. You've got to keep the gas pedal down to just maintain that momentum and and climb. And the second you let off, just even to coast, you know what happens. It it doesn't take long before you you lose all momentum and you just start sliding back down the hill. And it's the same for Christians who let up in their intensity in following Christ. They start to coast. They just indulge in some comforts of the world some pleasures of the world. And what do you know, though? Pretty soon, sure thing, they're, they're heading back down the hill. They're back sliding toward the world. And this is how this happens. And so it's for this reason that all of us need frequent reminders, admonitions, even warnings to, to not let up, to keep pursuing the Lord and the things of the Lord all the time, to not be conformed to the world. We need to be daily renewed in just repentance and faith. And it's to this effect that James writes in James chapter 4. And you can open your Bibles there now, if you haven't already, to James chapter 4. We're into James 4 now, verses 1 through 10, which in many respects forms the heart of this letter. James was dealing with a church in conflict. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the flesh was kind of getting the better of these early Christians. They were being overcome by their selfish desires. And whenever such 
desires of the self reign, well, you can expect conflict. And the, and the, the church in conflict, well, that, that diminishes and demolishes the church's witness. This is all what we learned last week. You can look again at verse 1 in James 4. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Self-centeredness in the church. It's like termites in a house. It slowly but surely eats away at the foundation. It leads to weakness instability, compromise, and and over time, it may fall down if it's not treated. And so James writes to treat, to give us some treatment here about this problem of conflict. And beginning in verses one through three, we learned last time, uh, he exposes the source of conflict. We're so prone to, in pride, blame others for all the sin and conflict in our lives. But James puts the blame squarely on us and and, and the driving desires of the flesh. If you're led by the desires of the flesh and not the spirit, well, you're going to be leading yourself into sin and conflict. You've got no one to blame but yourself, we learned. And you can get last week's message if you want to learn a a whole lot more about that. Now, understanding the source of conflict, naturally, we want to know, like, what's the solution? How do we resolve conflict in our lives in the church? That's coming up in verses 7 and following. But first, though, verses 4 through 6, that's our passage for today. James includes a section basically dealing with the fuel of conflict. The fuel of conflict. In a way, he's giving us an explanation of conflict. You're like, why does this happen? What's fueling the conflict in our lives. What is contributing to these fleshly desires, which we found is the source of conflict. He's going to help us with this. And, and in short, the short answer we'll find is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. You, you see for yourself, let's read James 4, verses 4 through 6. He says this, You adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is giving us a very serious admonition here to follow the Lord wholeheartedly where God wants us all to himself and following him is mutually exclusive with following the world. You've got to choose which way you're going to go just know that friendship with the world, that's only going to lead you away from God. And furthermore, James is showing us how friendship with the world That actually leads to more conflict in our lives. Because as you go the way of the world, it's fueling all those desires of the flesh. As we found in verses 1 through 3. So anyway, there's a lot to learn here. So without further ado, let's look at these verses. James has a stern message for us. 
But you'll see it comes by way of a contrast with God. So in other words, what he, he wants us to get here, what he wants us to do here, it comes as we see ourselves in relation to God. That'll make sense as we go. But what we're going to find are, are three attitudes of God meant to put us in our place. Three attitudes of God that put us in our place, a right place before him. And you will see as we go. Number one, the hostility of God in verse four. First, the hostility of God. Verse four is a pretty stunning verse. He says again, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is certainly the most stunning verse in James. You may have noticed kind of a motif of James over and over when he addresses his readers. He says what? My brethren. Nine times so far. My brethren. My brethren. My brethren. It's it's all over the place. But that fact makes this here in verse 4 all the more stunning where he doesn't say my brethren. He says, you adulteresses. What does he mean? Well, he's not talking about physical adultery. He's convicting them of spiritual adultery. Remember, James has a Jewish Christian audience. And so coming from a Jewish background, they would have immediately understood this reference to have Old Testament underpinnings. There are many metaphors used to describe God's relationship to Israel in the Old Testament. And one major one was marriage. Israel was depicted as God's bride. But of course, that means that as they went off and worshipped other gods, that amounted to what? Spiritual adultery. They cheated on their one true spouse. They forsook God for another love. And so God convicted Israel of her waywardness and spiritual adultery, often through the prophets. For example, Hosea, that's what Hosea is all about. Hosea 9.1, God says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. And this marriage metaphor carries over into the New Testament. It's picked up by Christ and the church. And there we learn that God sent Christ to redeem for himself a bride, the church. And it's not surprising that Christ wants a pure bride, right? He gave himself up for the church. And why is that? Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Christ died to redeem the church, that, that she would be holy and blameless. I mean, don't you want your spouse to be completely devoted to you, not looking elsewhere? Well, so does God. He wants all of our love, all of our adoration, all of our fidelity. The problem, however, is that all of us, to some degree, are unfaithful. James, he is talking to Christians here, professing Christians. But when you think about it, to a degree, all of us have betrayed our vows. We vowed when we came to Christ that we would deny self and we would follow him wholeheartedly. But 
when you think about it, every time we sin, we're in a sense breaking those vows. And the expression of our spiritual adultery here, James says, is friendship with the world. The world does not refer to the planet, but to the evil world system that is united in rebellion against God. And Christ himself told us, don't be friends with this world. Be his friends. Follow him. Be like him. Don't imitate the world. Follow him. Or as James put it back in chapter 1, verse 27, we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. We have to live in the world, but keep yourself unstained by the world. But again, this doesn't always happen. That's why we have to be told to keep ourselves unstained by the world. This is why Paul has to tell us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why do you think we need to be commanded that? Well, because it's the inclination of our flesh to go the way of the world. The path of least resistance is downhill. And so we have to be told and reminded to keep the, the pedal on the gas, to keep going uphill, keep pursuing the Lord. Otherwise, all too soon, we all will be committing spiritual adultery. When you start to befriend the world, though, meaning you start to share their values, their beliefs, their direction, well, then you're going to find enmity with God. James says, as you pursue an alliance with the world, he says, you are making yourself an enemy of God. See that in verse four? Like, you're doing this. You are making yourself an enemy of God. You're putting yourself in the path of God's hostility because you're, you're going to enemy territory. You're siding with the world. We're not saying it's wrong to love people in the world or befriend people in the world. What's wrong is to love the world itself, meaning it's antithetical for a Christian who professes to love God to then just buy into the world system and this worldview that, that hates God, that's just aligned against God in every way. We can't love what the world represents. This is all very similar to what John says over in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'll read it. It's a helpful reference. For John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But he who does the will of God lives forever. Now, what is this world system all about? Well, the world as it exists in its fallen and rebellious state is instead all about self. We've been saying that over and over again, but well, it's true. This world is, it's not God-centered. That's for sure. It is fundamentally self-centered, fundamentally selfish. The world is not concerned at all about God and his glory, but the operating principle is self-exaltation. You know, just make a name for yourself. Live for your glory. Build your own kingdom. And when the sinful self is the focus, well, then all, all the lusts of the flesh, they're going to flourish. 
This evil world system is quite evident in our culture today. There's like a million examples, but just say, for example, like music. Think of the, the top songs in the moment, or any moment, really. The top music artists. Are they singing praise to God? Or typically, you know, just praise to themselves. It's mostly just praise to themselves. They're just boasting. They may be some of the most self-consumed people on the planet, right? And they're really doing it all for their glory, their worship, gain a following, people who just essentially praise them. And so it's not surprising then. You just read the lyrics of like the top 10 songs and the vast majority are just outright promoting unrighteousness. When you think about it, right? I mean, they're not really after God and his ways, but just self and the way of the world. And so the lyrics are just straight up promoting immorality, impurity, adultery, drunkenness, violence, selfishness. You know what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh, sin. And you, you as a Christian, you might listen to a catchy th- song and think, it's just a song. Like, what's the big deal? I used to think that. But it's not just a song. It's a worldview you're listening to. It's a value system. And you're not just listening to a song. You are unwittingly being influenced by the world and the ways of the world, the value system of the world instead of God. And of course, you can say the, most thing, you can say the same thing about most TV shows and movies and internet media. And look, it's, it's not wrong for Christians to consume some aspects of our culture. You know, we're not legalists. We're not going to give you a list of songs you can't listen to or anything like that. But I mean, just what does it say about you when you love this world and the things of this world more than you love God and the things of God? You see the world's heroes, the celebrities, the influencers, and they're all about self. And you want to be more like them than you want to be like Christ. You're more concerned about following them than following the Lord. You just kind of eat up what the world is feeding you without question, without concern, without discernment. Do you see the problem with that? Because that's what he's getting at here. And you realize that's opposite love for God because that world and worldview hates God. So again, if you love this world and the things of the world so much, what does that say about your love for God? I mean, talk is cheap. And that's why John said back in 1 John, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are mutually exclusive. And he says, this world is passing away, which means so will you if you side with the world. Those who befriend the world and partner with it only find God's hostility. And look, again, even true believers are susceptible to this. We can be influenced. They retain a sinful flesh, which wants to pull them downhill. And so even true believers can flirt with the world. Take the Corinthians, for example. They were quite worldly. It's not a good thing. It's not okay. And the true believer can fall into a sense of worldliness. Not for long, the true believer will repent and by definition not habitually live in the ways of the world without repentance, without growth. But just know that if you linger long in your love affair with the world, well, you can expect God's hostility via discipline. He will in love discipline his children who are straying into darkness. 
Others, however, might find God's hostility in judgment. You know, there are some professing Christians, but they're so in love with the world. And they just, they're living in the world's darkness that the Bible says they reveal that, that their conversion is false. They're still married to the world. They're still enslaved to the lust of their flesh. And therefore, they're still under God's wrath. Paul spoke of some people in Philippians 3, 18 through 19. He said, for many walk of whom I told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame and who set their minds on earthly things. These were people who professed Christ, but they have just kind of walked away They were allured by the world, and now they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And those who persist in living as bedfellows with the world, they just prove that they're not really united to Christ. And so, look, just heed this warning here from James 4, verse 4. This warning of God's hostility. Examine your own heart. What are you living for? Who are you living for? What's your greatest love? Do you find more delight in the things of the world than the things of the Lord? And just understand there's no lasting peace or joy there. You know, the the threat of God's hostility here in verse 4, it's meant to warn us. Your flesh wants to deceive you, but, but don't go the way of the world. It's not the path of peace. It's actually the path of conflict, conflict with God, conflict with others. God wants us to have his peace, but he knows it's not found by befriending the world. Now, lest you be only motivated by fear, you need to hear more about God's heart for his people. Where God loves his people, Christ loves his bride. He doesn't want to see them straying. And you can understand that, right? I mean, how would you feel if your, your spouse was flirting with someone else like right in front of you? I know you, you want, you deserve all of their love and affection and desire. And it's the same with God, only more so. He created us for him and he is understandably not happy when we stray. And so God has a righteous jealousy when we befriend the world. For he knows that we're most fulfilled when we're living for him. And so learning about this next attitude of God, it's meant to put us in our place And that's a place of faithfulness. And so let's find next, number two, the jealousy of God. Secondly now, the jealousy of God. From the hostility of God to the jealousy of God. Look at verse five. He says next, or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, real quick, coming to verse 5, we find clearly the most difficult verse to translate in James. I'm not going to go into great detail. If you want, read a commentary. But I'll, I'll shortly tell you some of the issues in this verse, just, just so you know. Now, first, here James references the scriptures. But what he says matches no, like, single verse in the Old Testament. So he's, like, speaking generally of an Old Testament principle, but which one? Second, You know, ancient Greek manuscripts were written in all caps. 
if you can think, like in the Greek alphabet, is all caps. So they didn't distinguish between upper and lower case at first. So when James references the spirit here, does he mean like spirit big S, Holy Spirit, or spirit little s, human spirit? It could be either. And third, whichever spirit this is, is the spirit the subject of the sentence or the object? Again, in the Greek, it could be either. And then fourth, when he references this jealousy, this intense envy, is that to be taken as a vice or virtue? It could be either. And so, again, there's, there's lots of issues in this one little verse, and that's why your translation may differ from the NASB that we're using here. We don't have time to argue this all out. I'll simply say it's, it's a difficult thing because, well, the Greek leaves it open. This is a case where the Greek grammar doesn't settle the issue. But what does settle the issue, I think, is the context. And this is why I believe the NASB has it right here with the one exception where I do believe it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the human spirit, the inner man. And that's how the ESV has it, by the way. So with that, just so you're aware, it's a challenging verse, but let's, let's still go through it and see what James is saying here. Now, first, if you take God as the subject of this sentence, it's saying that he made a spirit to dwell in us, right? He, he made the spirit to dwell in us. And that's true for both the human spirit and the Holy Spirit, right? For believers, he's given us both our human spirit and then in salvation, the Holy Spirit. But what's in the context here? It's the human spirit. And after all, what is the human spirit? Biblically, it's the same as our inner man, our inner self. It's akin to the heart. And the Bible often uses the concept of the heart and the mind synonymously with the soul and the spirit. And the context of James, that's, that's precisely what he's dealing with. The heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit. Remember, we've got these fleshly desires back in verse 1. They're waging war in our bodies, but we found, like, where did these come from? Our heart, our, our spirit, our, our inner man. We don't just have a behavior problem. We have a heart problem. There's some problem in our very spirit that's leading us into sin and conflict. That's what we've learned. And so here's what I believe James is getting at when he says that God jealously desires the spirit that he made to dwell in us. You know, man has two parts, inner and outer, you know, body and spirit. And the spirit, well, God gave to us, the spirit animates our body. It was given to us by God. He's the author of our souls. So God made your soul. Why? Why did he give you a soul? What does he want from that soul and your body that he gave to you? Well, he wants worship. He wants exclusive worship from your soul. He gave you a heart. What does he want from your heart? Love. Total love. He gave you a mind. What does he want from your mind? Devotion. Complete devotion. And rightly so, because he's worthy. God made us for himself. And the church, doubly so, he made us and then redeemed us for himself. This bride for his son. And so God jealously wants us to be fully devoted to him, not just on the outside, but on the inside. That's what James is saying. He wants to be the sole object of our heart's desire. And so James is reminding us, it's just like Jesus said, 
in John 4, 24, that God himself is searching for something. That God is seeking after what? True worshipers. Who are those who worship in what? Spirit and truth. And that is little s there, by the way. It's spirit and truth. So, you've heard that God is a jealous God, right? And this phrase, jealously desires, it is otherwise used as a negative for humans because, well, jealousy for us, that's a vice. That's not a virtue. But you understand for God, Scripture speaks of his jealousy as a good thing. And I'll explain that briefly. You know, the Bible says that God is jealous for his own praise and worship and glory. And some people get rubbed the wrong way by that, thinking like, that's, that sounds like a negative, because we associate that jealousy with a negative. You know, it's like that pop star who wants all the attention, all the praise, all the, all the glory. And we would think that's a, that's a bad thing, because that, that pop star is not worthy of all, all glory and all worship. But the difference is that, well, God is. He is worthy, because he is supreme. Remember, we're talking about the all-powerful, all-knowing maker of the universe. And he's not just our creator. He's also our redeemer, which means he really is worthy of our praise forever. And so do you realize that God must prescribe for us to worship him alone? I mean, what else can God worship but himself? Can God worship the stars? Can God give glory to a tree? No, because nothing else is worthy of supreme praise but himself. And if God were to seek the glory of anything but himself, he would be committing cosmic idolatry. And likewise, if God told us to praise the ocean, to bow down to a cow, to exalt the stars, he would be telling us that he's not really supreme and he can't really satisfy the soul that he made. But of course, he is supreme, and he's the only one that can satisfy the soul that he made. And so this is why God must jealously seek his own glory through our praise, and he righteously does so. And he must, by definition, if he is God. And none of us is new, by the way. All this comes from the Old Testament, which is what I believe is behind James's reference to the scriptures here. I mean, take Deuteronomy 6, for example. It's a key chapter in Israel's history. God's revealing himself to them. And who is this God? What is he all about? What is his will for our lives? Listen, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you see how heart and soul are used interchangeably there? And do you also see how God gave us a heart and a soul, and what does he want from our heart and soul? He wants us to use all of our heart and soul to love him. It's always been this way. That's why he gave us a heart and soul. And furthermore, as God redeemed Israel and brought them up from Egypt to be his spouse— He wants their total devotion. And so it says later in verses 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy 6, he says, you shall not follow after other gods or any of the gods of the people who surround you. 
for the Lord your God in your midst. He's a jealous God. And what does God want? He just wants for his people to stay faithful. Friendship with the world. And their idolatrous, self-centered worship, that's, that's enemy territory. So if you go there, if you live there, you go back to your old love, well, you're just going to find, like we said, God's hostility. You know, it's not like God has an insecure jealousy where he's afraid, you know, we're going to find something better. You know, God knows there's nothing better we can find. His is a secure jealousy that just seeks the best for us. And God knows that's himself. And this exclusive worship of God, it's, it's just for your good. That's what it says later in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. And he says, for your good. This all is for their good. And so it goes for us. God jealously desires our purity, our devotion, our love. He made us for that reason. He redeemed us for that reason. And it's only right for him to demand the faithfulness of his spouse. You know, I said at the beginning that learning about these attitudes of God toward us are meant to put us in our place. And what place is that? It's a place of peace and fulfillment. God has designed all this for his glory and our good. And he knows that we find peace and joy and fulfillment when our hearts are given entirely over to serving him. So just be convicted of that. that that's your place. Know your place. Live in that place. The place of just total devotion to your maker and to your Redeemer, just sanctify yourself to be that pure virgin bride for God. It's what he wants and what he's worthy of. Now, does this sound like too much? Sounds a bit much. It is too much. But you know, God shows his overwhelming greatness in that he actually supplies us the strength to do what he calls us to do, to live for him, which we can't do on our own. And so we find finally, number three, the grace of God. Number three, the grace of God. Look at verse six. He says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives greater grace. Greater than what? Well, he gives greater grace in view of the greater requirement. Remember, his demand is just intense. He demands all of us. He's demanding all of your heart, and all of your soul. But you realize that's something we as fallen sinners, we, we can't give them that. Right? In, our, in our depravity, we're unwilling and unable. But God's own grace comes in to meet our need. Remember in the Old Testament, God often told Israel to circumcise their hearts. Right? He wanted their total heart devotion. And that would lead to obedience. And for them to be true worshipers, it's not enough for them to go through the motions. They needed new hearts, a new spirit, new affections. But you see, as, as sinners, we can't do that. We can't make that for ourselves. We can't, we can't give ourselves to God. But God supplied the grace needed to transform us. 
Through Christ's death and resurrection, applied by the Holy Spirit, God's grace gives us a new heart, a new spirit, new desires, new affections. He makes us into true worshipers. Do you realize? In spirit and truth. As Augustine said, and God gives what he demands. And his grace enables us to live for him. Listen to Titus 2, 11 through 14. It's like the perfect cross-reference. It just, it sums up all of this. Listen, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's a lot. That's its own sermon. But you think about the glory of the gospel. You see, God knows that we are all spiritual adulterers. All of us. We're all unfaithful. We're all unworthy of his love. But for those who are called, he doesn't pursue a divorce. He just pursues us. He redeems us. He takes us in. He calls us to himself. That is God's grace. That's, we just call that God's grace. And we find here hope and comfort, knowing that you know, the God who's for us, he's going to supply us all that we need to do what he calls us to do. He wants us to love him with all of our heart, might, soul, and strength. We can't do that, but he's, he's going to enable us to do that. He's going to give us the grace and strength that we need to do just that. You know, this talk of God's grace, it doesn't mean we just now like let go and let God and and we stop our striving because his grace will just kind of do it for us. And just the opposite, knowing that his grace supplies us the strength we need to overcome all those desires of the flesh. We're given the boldness to just push the pedal down to the floor and to, to pursue him even more. That's how we glorify God in this life. His grace makes us like Paul said in Titus, zealous for good deeds. And the sanctifying grace we need to grow, the grace we need to overcome all the lusts of the flesh, it's already been given to us, right? Via the new birth, via the Holy Spirit, via the scriptures. God has already richly supplied us with all the resources we need to grow and seek him. And so don't, don't turn to the world. There's nothing there turn to God. And the kicker here in the end is that only the humble will do so. And so James says, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The proud, the self-centered, they won't experience God's grace. They feel they don't need to, so they don't go to him. But the humble, the meek, and the lowly will. They recognize their sin. They recognize the waywardness of their own hearts. They confess their need for help, and so they, they go to God. And there they will be supplied with the power they need to grow. In fact, the very act of humbling ourselves and going to God, in that act, he gives us what we need. This is where we see the tie-in with conflict. Last time we learned about the source of conflict. 
Remember, which is your, your own pleasures which wage war in your, in your body. But do you realize, you know, those, those selfish desires? Do you realize that's what the world is all about? Right? Those selfish desires, they're the operating system of the world. And so the point is that if you befriend the world, you take in their culture, their ways, their wisdom, their worldview, their values, you know, unchecked and unfiltered, you realize that friendship with the world is feeding the lust of your flesh. That's what happens when you befriend the world. Unwittingly, you're, you're fueling the lust of your flesh. And remember, if we learn sin and conflict come from these lusts of the flesh, now we learn friendship with the world fuels the lust of the flesh, we'll put it together. As you befriend the world, you're only going to experience more conflict in life. And for a lot of you, this may be your problem, why you have so much conflict in your life. You know, the worldly Christian thinks that friendship with the world is the path to peace, right? We want conflict in life. Let's just be like the world to avoid conflict with the world. But that's actually the path to greater conflict because it will feed your selfishness and that's going to in turn fuel your conflict. But the flip side is also true. As you draw near to God, as you humble yourself, you recognize your sin, you recognize your own spiritual adultery, you repent, you return. Well, guess what? In that very act, you're now feeding the desires of the spirit. And as you turn from the way of the world, you're now starving the lust of the flesh. And in that right there, you're going to find the path to peace. And trials and troubles may abound, but you'll be rightly responding in the spirit because you love God more than self. You love God more than your other desires. You love your spouse more than stuff. And there you'll have peace. Now, this really sets up the final part of this passage where in the following verses, James is going to tell us now exactly what it looks like to return to God. And that's what we all need to do always. I mean, you want peace in life. You want meaning, purpose, fulfillment. Well, then you need to just return to your one true spouse, your maker, your redeemer. Just, just come back, draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. We'll learn more about that next time. But, but for now, just already set your heart on the one who redeemed you. Don't pull away. No matter what happens in your life, don't, don't pull away. And certainly don't turn to the world. Just, just draw near. Draw near to him and his love. You don't deserve his love. You realize that? I don't deserve his love, but we're thankful that his throne is called a throne of grace. So just draw near. Like Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let's draw near and let's pray. Father in heaven, we we want to draw near to you and to your heart right now, knowing your love for us, that you've made us and you redeemed us. You sent Christ to purchase us and to take us to be with him. Our, 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 our identity now is, is in you. you. You made us for yourself and we will only find that fulfillment in life when we are living with you and, and for you. And I pray you convict us of these things, Lord. Free us from the, the allurement of the world. We, we live in the world and the pressure is around us all the time to conform to this world, which is against you. And our flesh wants to take us downhill. 
But may we just receive this exhortation from James to just, no, keep, keep it up. Keep uh, pressing on toward the Lord. Keep the foot on the gas and just draw near. That's, that's what we need to do. And in that, we'll find what our soul longs for, which is peace and joy and, and meaning, fulfillment and acceptance. And the only acceptance that matters, Lord, which is with you. And so may we receive this and, and as always draw near to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.